Uh, reading this morning is from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We'll read together from verse 36. It's page 1094 in the Pure Bibles. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And this is uh, in the middle of Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Amen. Well, life in any family, and certainly life in a church family is often a strange uh, mix of joy and sorrow all stirred together at the same time, and that certainly seems true to me today. We have the joy of uh, welcoming Alanke into membership following her baptism at the end of last year. Uh, God willing, we can look ahead in the near future to more uh, baptisms. Uh, some of our young people are are good to go, as it were. We give thanks to God for that. But in the midst of the joy, there is also sorrow, there's also sadness, as we mourn the loss of Andrew Hepburn, who served this fellowship so faithfully for so many years. And yet, even in the midst of that sorrow, there is cause for gratitude and a life well lived, a life lived unto his Lord, that Andrew ran his race well to the very end. And we give thanks to God for that and for him. An example of a life lived committed 
to Christ, devoted to the Lord and to the people of the Lord as well. So it seemed appropriate to me to take a moment uh, this Lord's Day uh, just to stand back and to reflect upon what that means, what it means to be committed to Christ, what a life committed to Christ ought to look like, or perhaps better to say, what a community of people committed to Christ together ought to look like. And one of the most obvious places to turn to answer that question is to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at the example of the early church. The early church was not perfect, far from it. Most of the New Testament letters that we have uh, are written to the early church because they have problems that the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or John want to address and want to correct. So the early church was not perfect, and yet we have this picture of the very early church. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. It's only water, I promise. Um, the very early church, post-Pentecost, this kind of blueprint of what the church ought to look like, this church that lived filled with the presence, filled with the power, filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and Peter, who had only very recently been so fearful, we might say so cowardly, so afraid to bear witness to Jesus, now finds himself preaching to at least 3,000 people, probably, presumably more than that, but at least 3,000 people. And listen to the boldness of this man who so recently was so timid and so fearful. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Isn't that something? It can be a frightening thing to stand up in front of a group of people and to say something that you think might not be well received. And here is Peter, who was so timid, so fearful, standing in front of 3,000 people or more, 3,000 Jewish people, and saying to them, this is what you have done. Not just to an innocent man, though certainly that, but to the Christ, to the Messiah, to the Anointed One, to the One that we were called to wait for, to the One that we should have uh, recognized and received with open arms. God has sent His Son, and you murdered the Messiah. You killed the Christ. This was a shameful death, as well, remember, for the Jew. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, says Deuteronomy. Peter says, this is what you have done to God's anointed one. How could 3,000 people be guilty for the crucifixion of the Christ? They weren't all there, I'm sure, on that day. They didn't all lift Christ onto the cross or hammer the nails through the flesh on his hands or on his feet. In what sense are they guilty for the crucifixion? How can Peter say, 
that they murdered him. Well, if you're a Christian, then you know, don't you? Because you sang the last song, meaning it. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I wasn't there. I wasn't born for another circa 1,980 years. And yet, in a sense, I was there. Because it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It was their sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. It was your sin that held him there until it was accomplished, until Jesus' work was done, until he uttered that word, tetelestai. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is achieved. I wonder if that moves you at all. It moved Peter's hearers all those years ago. It cut them to the heart. They knew that this was serious. They knew that something had to happen in their lives in response to what God had done for them in Christ. What must we do? They said, brothers, what must we do? And the answer, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent just means change direction, turn around. And 3,000 of them did. 3,000 of them turned away from the life that they used to live, for most of them probably a very religious life and yet a godless life. And they turned to God in Christ and placed their faith and their trust and their hope in Him and followed Him with their lives. They were forgiven and they were baptized into newness of life in Christ. So, what does that life look like? What does this new life in the Lord Jesus look like? We're going to ask that question as we look at, what, six verses, is it? Five verses, six verses. Verses 42 down to 47. I think that's six verses by my maths. We're going to look at this blueprint for what the church should be, what the church could be. It is no longer the season to be jolly. It's now the season to count the cost, to try and work off some of those three boxes of roses or whatever we had to eat over the festive period. It's now the season to look at 2017 and set some goals, set some targets, set some New Year's resolutions. Well, let's, as we look at this blueprint for what the church ought to be in Christ Jesus, let's set some targets Nothing too grand, nothing out of reach, but just some targets for the next wee baby step that we can take as a church fellowship and as individual followers of the Lord Jesus. This is what a community committed to Christ looks like. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, 
to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had needs. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A community committed to Christ is a community devoted to four things. I'm sure there are many more that we could add to that list, but at least four things. If we are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must be devoted, we must be committed to each of these four things. Devotion and dedication are rare and precious things in our culture. Not many people are truly devoted to anything, I would suggest. We live in an age of short-term commitments to our jobs, to our loved ones, to everything and anything. And yet Christ calls us to a life of dedication and devotion. I'm not sure why it is so rare. We, have, we should have so much time to spend on the things that matter most. We have gadgets and gizmos aplenty. We have all these things promising to make life easier, to buy us time or to bring us pleasure, and yet we have never been so busy and so stressed. And so we find ourselves, if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, we find ourselves swept along by the circumstances of life, surviving day by day, rather than building a life dedicated and devoted to that which truly matters most. The call to Christ is the call to be dedicated and devoted to four things that the Spirit-filled church of Acts chapter 2 models for us. Devoted, firstly, to the apostles' teaching. The call to Christ is a call to lifelong learning. One of the saddest sights you will ever see is the Christian who believes that they have arrived, that they have made it, that they have all the answers, that they are sorted. We are not called to be converts who make converts. We are called to be disciples who make disciples. And discipleship by its very nature is a life lived learning from the Lord. Discipleship is apprenticeship. Discipleship is to be a trainee, to be a learner, to be someone on a journey with their master, with their Lord, learning more and more what it means to live like the Lord. There was a famous journalist in the last century called Collie Knox. He wrote a column called Collie Knox Calling. I think he was the, the radio journalist. I'm not sure if you even still get radio journalists, but I think he was a radio journalist uh, for the Daily Mail. And uh, shortly after the war, there was some kind of census done by the government 
And Collie Knox, on point of principle, refused to answer one of the questions on this census. And the question in question, if you'll pardon the pun, is this, when did you finish your education? When did you finish your education? Collie Knox said, I haven't finished my education, so I can't answer the question. I am still learning. And that ought to be the story for all of us who are Christians. Our education never comes to an end. We are called to a life of lifelong learning in the footsteps of our Lord. These early believers were devoted to learning more of their Lord, and the source of their learning was the apostles' teaching. Where do we get the apostles' teaching today? We get the apostles' teaching recorded for us in the Bible. Not everything that was written about Jesus found its way into the Bible. There were tests that the early church put these letters through before they got into Scripture. And above all the other tests was this. They had to be sure, they had to be certain that these letters had been written either by the apostles themselves or by someone who sat at the feet of the apostles. What we have in our New Testament is the apostles' teaching recorded for us. The apostles are long dead, but their authoritative teaching, their voice, is still to be heard as we pick up our Bibles and read. We have the New Testament, the apostles' teaching. We have the Old Testament, which is the, Jesus, the Bible that Jesus used and clearly saw as authoritative uh, for him. And so we ought to be so glad and so grateful and so thankful to the Lord for the gift of his word to us. And we ought to devote our lives to reading and to learning and to listening and to living out what we hear. I think only last week I quoted Spurgeon who said, visit good books often, but live in the Bible. We can learn from good books. We can learn from the example of others. We can learn from church, official church teaching. But the final authority is Scripture itself. Visit good books often, but live in the Bible. The words of others are important, but the Word of God is essential. And there will be times that the Word of God will be in sync with the society, with the culture that we find ourselves in, and there will be times that the Word of God is totally out of sync, unfashionable, unpalatable, unacceptable to the society that we live in. That's true for every nation and every generation, and our call is to learn, to trust, to teach the whole Word of God in season and out of season, to stay faithful to God by remaining true to His Word. And that requires courage. But we have courage, don't we? Or we have access to courage. Look at Peter preaching in front of all these thousands of people. Timid uh, Peter, who had been so afraid, so ashamed of his Lord, he is filled with the Spirit and he is filled with courage. And he does what the Lord calls him to do. And the same is true for us. If we are open to the Spirit of God, then we need fear nothing and no one. So question, how can we grow in the knowledge we have and in the love that we have for the Word of God? 
And how can we make sure that we are a people who don't think that we have arrived, but who press on to learn more of our Lord and what it means to be faithful to Him? What's the next wee step that you can take? What's the next wee step that we as a church family, as a church fellowship can take to be committed and dedicated and devoted to the Word of God? Secondly, they were devoted to the fellowship. They were a learning church, we might say, and they were a loving church. They were devoted to one another. They loved one another. They served one another. We thought at some length in the children's talk about the church as the body of Christ. The church is also called the bride of Christ. And we cannot love the groom if we will not love the bride. If we love Jesus, if we are committed to Christ, then we will love the church. We will be committed to the bride of Christ too. They were devoted to the fellowship. What did that devotion look like? What did that love look like? All the believers were together, verse 44, and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. We're probably not as arrested by that, as shocked by that as we should be. But the culture that these early Christians lived in, everyone knew where they were in the pecking order. You know, there were different stratas in society, from the very wealthy, very influential, down to the very poor bond servants, the lowest of the low uh, slaves. And these Christians lived as if these boundaries, these uh, barriers didn't exist. They were all baptized in the same water. They all broke the same bread. They all shared their lives together, and with their lives, their possessions. When someone is in, was in need, that need would be met by the community. We do have a benevolence fund. Let me take this opportunity to let you know that before the Lord's Supper, when the wee red offering bags come round, that's not just a second offering. That goes towards a benevolence fund for those of our fellowship who are in need and if you're in need or you know someone within the fellowship who's in need, the only people that need to know where that money goes are myself and Mr. Brenner. So we do have that. But what we also need to be faithful to the example of the early church, to the call of Christ, is just to love one another and to serve one another and to meet each other's needs in whatever way we can. And one of the great joys of being pastor of this church is that I get to see some of that behind the scenes. I get to receive some of that. You, you have blessed myself and Deborah and our family in lots of ways, lots of acts of kindness and thoughtfulness and graciousness and generosity. We've received that and I've seen that in the life of our fellowship. And I give thanks to God for that, for that love that exists within this fellowship. But we've never arrived. We're always called to learn and to grow. And so there is always room for more.
costly to love anyone. It's costly to heed this call to live a life of love. But the loveless life is no life at all. And who could claim to be a disciple of Jesus and not love others with a costly love? So what needs do others have that you could meet in Jesus' name? And how might you better love your neighbor as yourself? Finally, thirdly, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. We might say they were a learning church, they were a loving church, and they were a worshiping church. They were uh, not some kind of social club masquerading as a church. This was a spirit-filled family of God. There was awe in the presence of God. There was joy at the power of God at work. They ate together and they broke bread, remembering Jesus' supreme act of love, remembering the gospel, which had so radically brought them together and made them one in Christ. The gospel was at the heart of their life together. The gospel had opened the door to full fellowship, not only with the Lord, but with one another. And so, they broke bread and they prayed together. Spurgeon said, a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Calvin, to know that God is the Lord, to know that everything good comes from Him, to know that He invites us to ask Him for what we need, and yet not to call on Him, and to pray to Him is like knowing of a treasure hidden in the earth, and through indifference to leave it there without taking the trouble to dig it up. Or Newton, thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. It's easy to find really good quotes in prayer. I could go on. It's easy to find great quotes. It's harder to live a life devoted to prayer. And how countercultural it is. People might pray when every other avenue has been exhausted, when friends and family can't help anymore, when doctors can't help anymore, when no technology, no gadgets, no gizmos can help anymore, when we come to the very end of our tether, then maybe we'll pray. But to live a life devoted to prayer, to carve out time, to spend energy on praying. That is a challenge, but it's also a joy to know that we have the very ear of God, to know that He listens, to know that He cares, to know that He answers. So the question is not, do you believe in the power of prayer? The question is, do you believe in the power of prayer enough to be a man or a woman of prayer? Do you believe in it so much you are willing to devote your life to it, knowing that though it is a challenge, it is a joy, it is a privilege, it is an honor? As a church then, are we devoted to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and as a church fellowship, and to the Lord Himself, demonstrated by our gospel centered gatherings. 
and our passion for prayer. I give thanks to God for the signs of life. And there are many signs of life within this fellowship. But I also pray that we will grow this year, both as individuals and as a church fellowship, that we will grow in our love and our devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of God, for our joy in Jesus, and for God's glory. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.